Top of the news this evening is speculation concerning the real facts behind the Department of Health announcement about a radioactive spill supposed to have occurred yesterday at the state nuclear plant. Strange case. No sign of violence, yet she looks completely contorted in fear. Almost as if she'd been frightened to death. As if she'd seen something too horrible to live through. You're listening to the Really Awful Movies Podcast, a celebration of genre cinema. Hi, my name is Chris, and along with Jeff, we talk about movies that aren't really awful at all. Horror, action, kung fu, musicals, post-apocalyptic, women in prison films, and much, much more. Anytime someone sees something in a horror film someone else cannot, that's fodder for fright. Whether it's a chimerical figure, a portal to hell, a creature in the woods, or yes, imaginary friends. In this special episode of the Really Awful Movies podcast, Eight scary horror movie imaginary friends. It was once a consensus in psychiatric circles that kids, and it's usually kids, with imaginary friends were mentally disturbed introverts who needed some sort of intervention. University of Oregon developmental psychologist Marjorie Taylor has studied the phenomenon for decades and says it's fascinating that very young children can have the capacity to create a friend that they can derive real comfort and support from, that they love. You won't find such friends on this list, however, as horror movies, bless them, have yet to catch up to the research regarding the harmlessness of imaginary friends. So without further ado, as we're receiving counsel from a strange figure lurking in the shadows, here are a few horror movie imaginary friends. At number eight, the imaginary boy in The Conjuring. In James Wan's The Conjuring, a Rhode Island couple and their five daughters move into a decrepit farmhouse whose threshold their dog won't even cross and which also has a creepy boarded up cellar. Despite having three very obvious strikes against the property, Roger and Carolyn Perrin don't call U-Haul and don't get the hell out. Then again, if sound judgment were rewarded, the horror genre would cease to exist entirely. Sure enough, there's bad mojo at this abode and dark bruises begin to appear on mom's body. Then, one of the daughters strikes up a friendship with an imaginary boy. The house begins to quake and paranormal investigators are summoned, among other things. We have to get out of here. That's not gonna help. This thing has latched itself to your family. Father, we never seen nothing like this. I'm coming with you. No way, I can't lose you. Number seven, kids in the orphanage. In this Spanish horror, Laura, a former orphan, raises her adopted son, Simon, with help from husband Carlos, in an old house and former orphanage where she was raised. Soon the kid discovers playmates, not the good kind that bring you warmed over hors d'oeuvres in Hugh Hefner's grotto, but imaginary ones who involve him and his mom in a dangerous game which ambiguously plays itself out when the kid goes missing and psychics are hired to track him down. Never a good option, even as a last resort for the very dumbest of lease departments. Simon? 
Simón. There are children who can see a hidden world whose imagination opens their eyes. Number six, Ashley's Invisible Friend and Sinister. True crime writer Ellison Oswald, played by Ethan Hawke, walks around in a cardigan. That's a crime in of itself, if only of the fashion variety. But he's great, and Sinister is a mostly commendable supernatural horror. It's comparable to The Shining in that a writer and his family move out into the wilderness, and the scribe lets his psyche get the better of him. In the bungalow basement, Ellison finds some mysterious 70s Super 8mm film. Unfortunately, it's not from the golden age of porn. Rather, it's disturbing footage of the deaths of four people by hanging in his backyard. Soon, his son is experiencing night terrors and depicting the backyard hanging in his school art. Then, a sinister ghost appears as daughter Ashley's imaginary friend, getting her to scrawl a picture on the wall. The mystery deepens, and we find out it involves the puzzling Mr. Boogie, which sounds like a deep album cut by Bootsy Collins. I didn't want to move here. We couldn't afford to live in the old house anymore. Plus, the new story I'm writing is here. Is the story a good one this time? I'm going to write the best book that anybody's ever read. I got a really good feeling about this. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. Family hanging out. Barbecue 79. That's the family who lived here. You think these are serial murders? I don't know. First one I found dates back to the 60s. The only link between all these cases is the symbol. The symbol is associated with a pagan deity named Bagul. He consumes the souls of human children. actually lived in the images themselves and that they were gateways into his realm. 
children exposed to the images were especially vulnerable to Bagul's abduction. Sweetheart, what are you doing? Painting. I want to paint her picture. Who are you talking about? Stephanie. She's Olivia. What's happened? Get the kids, pack the car. We have to leave here now. Number five, Ivan in The Machinist. The workforce in this Christian Bale film really needs to unionize, as this place has occupational health and safety standards south of your average Victorian textile mill. Bale plays a machinist named Resnick. Incidentally, that's Czech for butcher a term that you won't require backpacking through Prague unless you want to lug a rack of lamb up to your hostel. Like Brad Pitt in Fight Club, Bale altered his appearance considerably for the role, shedding some 60 pounds worth of normal acting in favor of the method kind. Resnick is a sleep-deprived machinist, lulled into a state of negligence and complacency by a creepy co-worker, the grinning Ivan. Alarm bells go off when it is revealed that the company has no record of any such worker, and the viewer begins to wonder if the electricity powering the machines in the film might also be used for shock therapy on our delusional protagonist. Distracted by a grinning, digit-deficient Ivan, Resnick unwittingly powers up a saw, which results in another co-worker no longer being able to hail a cab nor flip anyone the bird. I'm Ivan. Trevor. Well, I guess I better be getting back. I hear that Tucker guy can be a real prick. You got that right. I'll see you around. Number four, Captain Howdy in The Exorcist. The Exorcist did more for puking, spinning, and hallucinations than untreated alcoholism. It's an undeniable possession classic that's often imitated, never duplicated. Captain Howdy sounds like the world's second creepiest children's TV character, Mr. McFeely of Mr. Rogers fame being the first, and is conjured up by Reagan's mother on an Ouija board. A psychiatrist asked to speak to Captain Howdy, and here's the following dialogue. Is there someone inside you? Sometimes. Who is it? I don't know. Is it Captain Howdy? Incidentally, Captain Howdy is also the name of the most popular exorcist fan site. Hey, where'd this come from? I found it. Where? Closet. Huh. You been playing with it? Yep. You know how? I'll show you. You really don't want me to play, huh? No, I do. Captain Howdy said no. Captain who? Captain Howdy. Who's Captain Howdy? You know, I make the questions and he does the answers. Oh, Captain Howdy, yeah, I see. Nice. Oh, that is. Here, I'll show you. Captain Howdy, do you think my mom's pretty? 
Captain Howdy. Captain Howdy, that isn't very nice. Number three, Jody and the Amityville Horror. Some see a notorious property as a buying opportunity where you can sweep in, lowball the agent, give the place a good scrub down and remove all the bad vibes and hanging plants. The more passive approach, leaving things to hell alone, is luckily not the preferred course of action people take in horror films. People who, also, try as they might, can't help but trust the guy with an impossibly large collection of pickled insects who runs the gas station. The Amityville Horror is based on the true story of serial killer Ronald DeFeo and was adapted from a novel by Jay Anson, who did for the town of Amityville what Truman Capote did for Holcomb, Kansas, except without the witticisms. A couple moves into a Long Island home where the murders took place and make the fatal mistake of not calling in an interior decorator and adding, say, a nice peaceful aquarium to the killing room. Their daughter develops a relationship with a sinister imaginary friend named Jody whose eyes glow red and who recounts tales of the house's nasty history. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me, yes. Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible. Who are you singing to, Princess? You scared Jody. Jody? There's no one here, see? You scared her. She went out the window. She went out the window? Well, I, I better check and make sure she's not still there, huh? Honorable mention is Frank and Donnie Darko. A whacked out teen sleepwalker is tipped off that the world will end in 28 days by a giant rabbit, Frank, who convinces him to commit a series of increasingly violent acts. The first of these is flooding his school by taking an axe to the water main and also embedding said axe in the bronze statue of a bulldog, the school's mascot. When it comes to imaginary giant rabbits, there's a sentence you don't get to see every day. Of course, there's the Jimmy Stewart vehicle, the 1950 comedy drama Harvey. Donnie Darko director Richard Kelly claims to have not seen it. Number two, imaginary friends in session nine. The killer who's escaped from an insane asylum has become a cliche in the slasher world, and his presence is usually announced via some radio dispatch. However, it's what's inside the mental hospital that presents an interesting opportunity to depict an institutionalized horror, the very real frights associated with what in hindsight seemed like barbaric practices when it came to treating people with mental illness. This includes the infamous lobotomies and psychosurgeries popularized in the 1930s, referenced here in the movie in flashback, as Session 9 focuses on a five-member Massachusetts asbestos hazmat remediation team hired through a lowball bid to clean up a creepy shuttered asylum. The film stands apart as one of the most ruthless and jarring representations of bedlam ever committed to film shot in Massachusetts at Danvers State Hospital 
also known as the State Lunatic Hospital at Danvers. Session 9's verisimilitude is unmatched. When the ghosts of Danvers are present, it adds a level of heartbreak and realism to the film. Metaphorical ghosts, that is. The residents of Danvers are very present in tales the ground security guards tell about deinstitutionalized patients returning to the grounds that they had nowhere to go, and stories of repressed and stories of repressed memory syndromes and sexual abuse. The most affecting moments come from a longtime resident with multiple personality disorder, Mary Hobbs's voice, heard via a psychiatrist old reel to reel, in which she tells the doctor about her three friends, which only exist in her mind. I know this is difficult, Mary. That's why we're here to help. I miss Peter. I miss him so much. Mary, I want you to try and remember what happened 22 years ago on Christmas night in Lowell. That's where we grew up. Yes. Can you tell me what happened that night in Lowell? Nothing happened! Mary, something did happen, and that's why we have these sessions to help you remember so you can get better, okay? No! I can't remember! I can't! Patient is showing extreme agitation. She's putting her fingers in her mouth. Mary? Mary? Have you seen our doll, Mr. Doctor? Who am I speaking with? Mary got a china doll from her mommy, and we can't find it now. Do you know where it is, Mr. Doctor? No, Princess. I haven't seen it. Maybe Billy knows where it is. <laughs> Billy, silly. Princess, tell me what happened 22 years ago on Christmas night in Lowell. We got presents. Mary got a pretty china doll. And Peter got a big old knife. Then what happened? Mary's mommy and daddy went to sleep, and then we played upstairs. Peter turned off the lights and hid, and Mary tried to find him. Who played upstairs, Princess? Mary, and Peter, and me, and Billy, silly. Has Billy told you what happened next? Billy only tells me nice things, Mr. Doctor, like I'm pretty. Was Simon there that night? Simon? Oh, I don't know any Simons. Billy never told you about Simon? No. I'm tired, Mr. Doctor. Well, maybe Billy would like to talk now. Billy's asleep, Mr. Doctor. He's asleep. Number one. Tony and Lloyd the bartender in The Shining. Creepy kids with imaginary friends is a horror film cliche up there with the hick sheriff who warns prophylactic preoccupied spring breakers that there are strange doings out in the woods other than the doings that spring breakers do to each other. The top dog when it comes to kitties with bad, bad, made-up friends is, of course, The Shining. Tony is Danny Torrance's imaginary friend who, among other things that no doubt contributed to shunting him off to the child psychologist, makes him spell out words in lipstick. Hated by Stephen King, who was instrumental in remaking The Shining as his own version, hated by everyone else, The Shining is visually stunning and a frightening isolationist exercise, with poor old Scatman Crothers done in just like black folks always are in these types of films. Another imaginary character from this film is Lloyd the bartender, 
who was overall a pretty positive influence, as you wouldn't have to tip a hallucination. Or for that matter, a need to worry about getting cut off. Hi, Lloyd. A little slow tonight, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is, Mr. Torrance. What will it be? I'm awfully glad you asked me that, Lloyd. Because I just happen to have two 20s and two 10s right here in my wallet. I was afraid they were going to be there till next April. So here's what. You slip me a bottle of bourbon, a little glass, and some ice. You can do that, can't you, Lloyd? You're not too busy, are you? <laughs> no, sir. Not busy at all. Good man. You set him up and I'll knock him back, Lloyd. One by one. White man's burden, Lloyd, my man. White man's burden. Say, Lloyd, it seems I'm temporarily light. <laughs> How's my credit in this joint, anyway? Your credit's fine, Mr. Torrance. That's swell. I like you, Lloyd. I always liked you. You were always the best of them. Best goddamn bartender from Timbuktu to Portland, Maine. Or Portland, Oregon, for that matter. Thank you for saying so. Don't forget to check out the Really Awful Movies podcast with new episodes uploaded every Friday for your listening enjoyment. And help out the show by picking up a copy of our acclaimed book, Death by Umbrella, The Hundred Weirdest Horror Movie Weapons. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you.